0: We've been studying the rapture the last couple weeks. This has been part of our regular study through 1 Thessalonians, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we come to this section that we're going to finish today, which began in chapter 4, verse 13, where Paul is describing the return of the Lord and the rapture. And we've looked not just at what these verses have said, but we've taken the opportunity to give a wide biblical overview of the entire doctrine of the rapture. Initially, Paul wrote to the church here not to be worried about Christians who had died, or as he said, fallen asleep, because he says we are all going to be caught up with Christ in what we call the rapture, and that was the Greek word harpazo. We looked at that, which means to seize or to snatch, right, to carry away, and the Latin version of that word is raptura, which is where we get the word rapture. Kind of silly to say that the word rapture isn't in the Bible, so we can't believe in it. It is. It just depends on what language you're reading it in. And we believe that the rapture, which is described in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 54, and John 14, 1 through 3, in addition to this passage, the rapture is a separate event from what you call the second coming of Christ when he returns to establish his kingdom. We also believe that it will precede the final seven years, the great tribulation as it's called, and we're going to talk a lot about that today. We looked at Two weeks ago, the prophecy that Daniel made of the 70 weeks remaining for Israel and that there are seven years, one week left. And so we believe that the church will be removed before that because it's not the time of the church anymore. It's the time of Israel again. Last week, we talked a lot about imminence, the imminent return of Christ. We saw that Paul reminded them the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief with no signs to precede it. So we focused on how the rapture could happen today, could happen in five minutes, We said if the Lord, and he has, has given us a timeline of that last week, of those final seven years, full of signs, full of timelines, He even gives us a specific number of days in certain places, how can we say that the end of that is imminent? So the imminent part obviously referred to the beginning, and we believe that applied most primarily to the rapture of the church. We also took the time last week to examine that there is a lot of bad teaching out there, Related to prophecy. Every couple years, there's a new wave of somebody who has figured out how to know all the things that Jesus said we can't know. And that we want to ground our Bible teaching in the Bible, oddly enough, not in the headlines, what's going on around us, not in the most popular books, but what does the Bible say? So, in that spirit, we're going to go on to the next verses. And verse 9 in particular is what I consider the most important argument concerning the rapture of the church. So I'm very excited to get into it. Let's read now just two verses, verses 9 and 10, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You're going to want to underline this. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So this is the concluding statement of this section. He uses that word for, which is gar in Greek. He's explaining why why should I keep awake and be sober, as he said in the most recent verses. Or why should I have hope, as he described in the previous chapter? Because, as he says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. And that seems like a commonplace statement. It makes sense. We believe that. But in this context... That verse is definitive for what we believe about the rapture. And I'm going to go ahead and state this point before we go back and try to defend it. If we as Christians have not been destined for wrath, why should we expect to endure the seven-year tribulation when God will pour His wrath out on the world? If God is going to spend seven years pouring out His wrath on the world... How can we rightly say that a Christian who is not destined for wrath is going to have to endure that? Now, as I've said many times, the, the rapture is not given a time. It's not given a date. Jesus told the disciples, quit worrying about that. But in the grand prophetic scheme, in the, when you look at those big blocks that we discussed, where does this event fit? I believe it fits first because everything after that would violate verse 9, I believe. And we're going to spend a lot of time examining that. You know, most of the time, you've maybe found this if you've been into this kind of teaching before, the pre-tribulational rapture belief is most of the time not engaged on a biblical level. Folks that, that don't agree with us, and they're allowed to disagree. This is not a salvation matter. But folks who disagree with us, they don't want to look at what the text says. They don't want to look at what our arguments are. I have found that most of the time we get mocked. Or we get scoffed at, which is odd because a lot of times the people doing that are people who should know better and will take other positions that are even more fanciful very seriously. And sometimes that's fair because there's a lot of kooky people out there. Sometimes as a believer in Christ or as a holder of certain positions, you end up on the same boat as people you'd rather not be on the boat with. But that's okay. We get accused very often of, you just believe in the pre-trib rapture because of John Darby or C.I. Schofield which are two people that I've never read a lick of anything they wrote, and I have never been taught in a pre-trib church to go look them up. I've only ever heard it from people who say that's all that we ever talk about. I'm sure they're great, but that's not where I got it. And we've been going through the last three weeks, we've been looking at the text. We've not been looking at a lot of quotes, have we? We've been accused, I heard this one recently, that pre-trib rapture is just Cold War theology. Like, okay, so which is it? John Darby and C.I. Schofield died before the Cold War, so... Which is it? And we're not in the Cold War now. I fail to see how this corresponds to the stress over the nuclear situation and the Soviet Union. But it's an easy thing to say, you know. We get accused of splitting hairs. That's a little more fair. Because there are some dispensationalists and pre-trib rapture guys who split hairs more finely than I would want to. Or at least I would say sometimes the way that they say things makes me go, don't say it like that because no one's going to hear you when you say it like that. We get accused of fantastical claims, and it's kind of hard to avoid that one. Because we have a lot of buddies, as I say, who get really excited about things that are not really that exciting when it comes to the prophetic picture. But the most common objection that we face as pre-trib rapture adherents is that we are escapists. Have you heard this one? You only believe that you're going to avoid the tribulation because you don't think you should have to suffer. You are a privileged Western Christian. You've never been persecuted. You've never had to endure suffering. So it's inconceivable to you. And here's one I hear all the time. You go around the world. All these other people have no problem with suffering. Hold on a second. First of all, I've, as I've said, grew up in a pre-trib church and a pre-trib association. I went to a pre-trib high school, college, college and seminary, and I myself have taught pre-trib doctrine for a long time. I have never once heard anybody say that that's why we believe in the rapture. The only people I've ever heard say that are people that disagree with me. We've, we know for a fact, Acts 14, that it is only through much affliction and suffering that we must enter the kingdom. Romans chapter 8 says that we are heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him. We don't avoid that. We know that. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 3, Paul said that no one should be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. So we don't avoid that, so it's not fair. Secondly, when we discuss the tribulation, the seven years at the end, We're not talking about suffering or affliction or persecution in general. We're talking about the wrath of God, which we, as we just read, are not destined to. Let's compare those two verses I just read. They they, they use different words in the Greek, but they mean the same thing, and the sense is clear. In chapter 3, verse 3, Paul told the Thessalonians they were destined for afflictions. But in chapter 5, verse 9, he tells them they were not destined for wrath. So in the same book, just a few paragraphs down, again, Paul is a smart person. He's not about to contradict himself that quickly. He's also got two co-authors. He can say, you are destined for affliction. I pray that God will help you to endure it. But when it comes to chapter 5 and he's talking about the day of the Lord, he's talking about judgment, he's saying, you're not destined for wrath. We're not talking about suffering. This is not a matter of escapism. If you say, I can't wait for the rapture because I don't want anything bad to ever happen to me, you need to go home and check your heart. Because this is not escapism. This is a matter of how do we properly interpret scripture. How can we expect a Christian to endure something for which God says, I have not destined you for that? Oddly enough, it's it's very often those who hold to a reformed or Calvinist position that have a very high view of the sovereignty of God that want to say, that we're going to endure the wrath of God, which he says we have not been destined to. I find that just a little ironic. I believe this is our slam dunk argument when it comes to pre-trib. No other literalist position can sufficiently answer this question. You ask somebody who is post-trib, mid-trib, any of these things, how can you say that we're going to endure the wrath of God? They, they, they cannot give a sufficient answer to that. Now, if you want to say that the millennium is not really a millennium or that the tribulation is not really seven years or it's all symbolic for something else, that's a different conversation to be had. And I think that, that we've answered that in other studies, so I'm not going to get into that. We are assuming that we read the word literally and we take it seriously and it means what it says. So today we're simply going to stew in this argument a little bit. I I believe it's not just going to be instructive for us. I think it's also encouraging and it's exciting too for us to remember that we are not appointed to wrath. And while there's a doctrinal conclusion, there's also a personal encouragement that comes from this. So let's break this down. What is the wrath of God? Everybody just said, oh, please don't start that far back. Don't worry, we're going to go quick. The wrath of God is the Greek word orge. It's not complicated. Sometimes... You look in the Greek, and it means what it means in English. In fact, I'd say most of the time. (laughs) Orge just means wrath. It means anger. It's God's reaction to sin and wickedness. Now, our wrath is passionate, where we fly off the handle because we were so angry. God never does that. God is in complete control, and he is able to keep his wrath in reserve until the proper time. Romans 1 verse 18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God created the world good. He created it whole. But his creation, angels and people alike, have asserted their own will. They've broken his world. They've brought sin. They've brought curse. They've brought all kinds of wickedness. They have suppressed the truth. And God is angry about it. God is wrathful about it. And he will repay those who have done this. Sometimes we feel like we don't want God to do that, but then we'll we'll listen to songs about pollution or hunger in Africa and we get angry. Why doesn't God do something about this? That anger is a little piece of what God has when he looks at creation as a whole. This is not just pettiness. This is God's justice at work. You get mad and sometimes you know you shouldn't be mad. You know, you're driving and you, you try to blow through that yellow light and then somebody comes up real close and stops short and honks at you and you're like, hey, I was coming here. And you're like, I probably shouldn't be mad because I shouldn't have done that. God doesn't do that. God is all good. This is a very reassuring thing maybe. God's wrath is only ever aimed in the right direction. It only ever comes to those who deserve it. But maybe that's less than comforting because we know that we all deserve the wrath of God, don't we? We all have sinned. We all have fallen short. We all deserve the wrath of God, eternal judgment in hell. So what are we going to do? Well, you know the answer to this. God in his mercy said, all right, I'm going to put off judgment. There will be a day. There will be a day of judgment, a day of wrath, so that God could work to save as many as he could. But here's the thing, how can God provide a way of escape from his perfect just wrath? If God is only ever right in his wrath, for him to not do that, to not engage in his wrath, to not execute judgment would be wrong. In the same way that if somebody is brought before a judge for horrific crimes and the judge says, you know what, I'm just going to let him go. See, that's not right. That might be a nice thing to do, but that's not a just thing to do. So how could God do this? There needed to be a substitute, someone to take the penalty to atone for sin, like the Old Testament sacrifices, the lambs and the goats and the bulls. But as Hebrews makes very clear, the blood of a lamb or a bull or a goat cannot take away your sin. It seems pretty obvious, right? We needed a perfect, greater sacrifice. And that, of course, was Jesus Christ. God made flesh. God himself said, I will provide that sacrifice without sin. So there was no penalty attached to Jesus Christ. Yet he was a man, so he was able to suffer for sin. And because he was God, his death was able to apply not just to one person, but to all people. And at the cross, Jesus endured the wrath of God the Father. When you think about what do you deserve, what does your sin deserve, go home and watch The Passion of the Christ again. Remember, that's what you deserve deserve. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Then Jesus, of course, rose from the dead. He proclaimed victory over sin and death. He says, there is now a way of escape for all who believe. This is our salvation from God's wrath. God said, in my perfect justice, I will take the penalty so that way I can forgive as many as I can. And the church has been sent out to bring that good news to the whole world, to call people to be reconciled to God. In Christ Jesus, we are the righteousness of God. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. There's no wrath left to be poured out on you because Jesus took it all on the cross. Isn't that wonderful? Somebody can say amen or something to that. The wrath and the justice of God have been satisfied. So Paul can write, we're not destined to endure judgment and fire at the end, because that's already been handled. That's sort of the whole deal as a Christian, is that I will surrender my life in humility and submission to God, and God will allow Christ's payment to count for me. So I think you can anticipate where we're going with this. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation? No condemnation. Jesus in John 19.30 hanging on the cross said it is what? Finished. 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 So if there is no condemnation, if it is finished, if we have been made the righteousness of God, how can we then expect to endure seven years of God's wrath? This is not just an issue of eschatology, the doctrine of last things. This is an issue of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. The question you need to ask, is Jesus' death enough to deliver you from all of God's wrath? Or must some of us have to endure it a little bit? Well, I think we know the answer. Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now it's clear from that verse, it's clear from chapter 5, verse 9 in 1 Thessalonians as well. That a Christian who is in Christ is not destined for wrath. That's no longer part of your destiny. So our question then, in relation to this, is, does the seven-year tribulation period constitute the wrath of God? Daniel's 70th week, the seven years that are coming at the very end, talked about throughout the Bible, does that make up the wrath of God? Because if it does then we cannot expect for a Christian to have to endure that. And there are a few answers to this question. The first being, well, no, when it talks about the wrath of God, it's referring to eternal wrath. It's referring to the the day of judgment, and we're going to escape that. So it doesn't matter about the seven years. To which I would say, you've got to look at the context of what Paul's talking about here in chapter 5. He's talking about the day of the Lord. He's talking about birth pangs. He's going to refer, using the same language in the next book, to the time of the Antichrist. So, that's not really a good option. And then there are those who say, well, no, the end of the tribulation, that's the wrath of God. When Jesus returns, and, and that, that's what counts as the wrath of God. And that could make some sense. But if you read Revelation 19, 15, where it talks about the Battle of Armageddon, Jesus said he will tread the winepress of the wrath of God Almighty. Backing up a little further in chapter 16, verse 1, it says that the seven bowl judgments, if you know your Bible, you're familiar with this, are contain the wrath of God to be poured out on the world. And most of all, Revelation 6, verses 15 and 17, we're going to be in this book a lot today says then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to them, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That's the sixth seal judgment when Jesus is breaking the seals on that scroll in heaven which is not the end of the story, as most people understand it. So, already, we see it there, we see it in chapter 16, we see it in chapter 19. The the entire book of Revelation is full of stories of the wrath of God. It's kind of hard to say that it doesn't count. Now, there are those that that hold to what's called the pre-wrath position, which say, we don't know when it starts, but we know it doesn't start at the beginning, so whenever the wrath starts, we're going to get raptured. Not a very popular position, but it's out there. You've also got the mid-trib position. Again, not very popular, but it's out there. Folks who say the rapture will happen in the middle because Jesus said that in the middle would be the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist sets up his image in the temple. That is a very significant moment in the book of Revelation, especially in the book of Daniel, chapter 7. He talks about the the remaining 1,260 days, the time, times, and half a time. It sounds compelling, except... You read the whole book of Revelation, and the whole thing is filled up of, the, of wrath. And what they then have to do is take any place where it talks about wrath and find a way to stick that behind the abomination of desolation so that they can keep their mid-trib position going. But I don't think you can do that. Daniel 9, 27, and Revelation 6, verse 2, talk about the, those last seven years as the time of the Antichrist. That seems significant to me. Matthew 24, verse 8, Jesus said that there would be the beginnings of birth pangs before the abomination of desolation. And that reference to birth pangs throughout Scripture is talking about the day of the Lord. And I think it's pretty clear the day of the Lord is the day of wrath. We talked about that. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, it says that those seven years will be a time where there is no divine restraint on evil. And Romans 1 describes that as the judgment of God. So I don't see how you can see all these things going on and say, yeah, but it's not the wrath of God, though. Especially when you add together all those verses we just read. The day of the Lord is a specific day, but as we talked about last time, it is also a time period. There were several days of the Lord in the Old Testament, all culminating in the ultimate day of the Lord. And in the same way, those seven years are going to build to that final day. When God removes his hand of restraint and he breaks that first seal and unleashes the devil to have his way on the earth and raise up the Antichrist, that is the day of wrath. I think it's pretty clear. The tribulation, as we refer to it, as a New Testament term, is the same thing as Daniel's 70th week, which is an Old Testament term. And it's the same thing as the general day of the Lord, which is a whole Bible term. And all of those together describe the wrath of God being poured out on the world. Just as a woman's labor pains start small, and you're almost like, is that it? I don't know. I don't know if that was, that was a pain or not. Let's just keep going. Oh, no, I think that was definitely one. And then it builds up. By the time it's almost there, oh, you know for sure this baby is almost here. And just as we say that a woman's delivery might refer to the last moment of giving birth, really we can also talk about the whole process from the time of the first contraction to the delivery. It's the same thing. This is the illustration the Bible uses. And back in verse 3 of this chapter, it says that labor pains would come upon them when they're saying peace and safety. The day of the Lord is the birth pangs of the kingdom. What's being born? The kingdom of God. The world is, is getting ready through all the judgment and terrible, horrible things for what God is going to bring in. And in the Bible, those birth pangs take up seven years. I think this is pretty clear. Since the final seven years, the tribulation period, is the wrath of God, how can we say that the church is going to go through that? Now, most people acknowledge that those seven years are full of wrath. It's, it, we get accused of hair-splitting a lot. I think it's hair-splitting to say that this part is the wrath of God and this part is not. And most people agree with that. So then the question is, okay, Christians are not destined for wrath. The tribulation period is a time of wrath. Therefore, how can we be expected to go through that? Well, there are a couple of dodges that we have here. When they say, well, listen, we'll go through the tribulation, but God will preserve us during that time. That we'll somehow be immune, like the children of Israel in the land of Egypt. We're immune to all the judgments and plagues. Well, I think that that's a misreading of the Bible for two reasons that we're going to get into. Number one, in the book of Revelation, Christians are made mincemeat during those years. And also because the church is nowhere to be found during that time. In the tribulation, mostly described in the book of Revelation, we see repeated descriptions of martyrs. Martyrs that cannot be counted. People who have been killed for their faith from all over the world. It's a major focus of the book, actually. Now, you also read of 144,000 Jewish saints who are protected in chapter 7. You read in chapter 12 of Jews who flee to the wilderness from persecution and God miraculously preserves them. And then we can read that and say, well, then that must apply to the church too. Christians get no such protection in the book of Revelation. It says that Satan will make war against those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. It's going to lead to all those martyrdoms to where there's a great multitude that cannot be counted under the altar in heaven saying, Lord, will you avenge us? Will you avenge us? So in the tribulation, what we see in the book of Revelation, Jews are protected, Christians are not. Revelation 13, 7, talking about the Antichrist, it says it was given to him to make war with the saints, to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. This is significant. The Antichrist is given authority to overcome the church. And I think that's pretty relevant when you consider what Jesus told Peter in Matthew 16, 18. He said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And you read through the New Testament. He's saying, hey, we're being pressed down, we're being oppressed, we're being persecuted, but the gospel is marching on and the gospel is not in chains. When you get to the book of Revelation... Christians are stamped out it's clear not only do Christians suffer during the tribulation they especially suffer during the tribulation so there's no basis for claiming that the the church is going to go through the tribulation and somehow avoid anything because it doesn't say that it's an argument from silence and it's actually ignoring all this stuff that says it's actually going to be worse for Christians what says he's going to protect the Jews yeah exactly We've talked about this, the distinction between the church and the nation of Israel. Now there are folks who say, okay, fine. But if we see Christians being killed in the book of Revelation, how can you claim that there's no church there? Because the church is not there, although Christians are. Let me explain what I mean there. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, it describes who those martyrs are. John looks at them and says, who are these guys? He says, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. He's saying that those in the book of Revelation who are being martyred for the name of Jesus Christ are those who have washed their robes in the tribulation, in those seven years. It's very specific about how it describes them. And you search through the book of Revelation. You will not find the word church used, except in the first three chapters. And he says, write to the church in Ephesus, write to the church in Smyrna, write to the church in Laodicea. But then as soon as he describes the future and the judgment that's coming on the world, he stops using that word. John's not afraid to use it, the Greek word ekklesia, but he doesn't use it. Now, that on its own might not be so significant, but we need to describe this. We already know that the church, the capital C church, is a unique, as Paul would say, mysterious body of Jews and Gentiles, who are together tasting the first fruits of the kingdom. We're sort of this people out of time, that we're tasting the beginning of what's God going to do, but we haven't tasted the consummation of it yet. We're distinct from the nation of Israel. Read through Romans 9, 10, and 11. Paul makes that very, very clear. And I think that this matters, because we see the church in Revelation 2 through 3 a lot, and then you don't see them on earth anymore in the Bible until the very, very end. In fact, as soon as John finishes writing all those letters to the churches in chapter 3, Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, he says, "After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven." And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, "Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this." Now, this would be a very small foundation to build a big doctrine on, but I do think it is significant that When you finish talking about all the churches and before we start talking about the tribulation, John hears somebody say, come up here. And the next thing we see is he's up there in heaven. And I think it could be significant because when John gets to heaven and he has a vision, he sees what? 24 elders sitting on thrones, wearing crowns. I think that's pretty obviously a symbol of the church. Or perhaps the Jews and the church, the Old Testament saints. There's dispute over that. But... These are people in heaven singing songs in chapter 5 about how God has ransomed people to himself from every nation and all over the world. They're sitting on thrones, just like Jesus promised. They're casting the crowns before him, just like Jesus promised we would have crowns. Something God had promised earlier in these chapters. And these people are the audience that watches the judgments unfold. They don't take place, they're not on the earth, they're observing and watching and responding throughout the story to what goes on. And we don't see, I think, the church again until just before the very end. Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8, right before that crazy passage where Jesus comes riding on a white horse and his robe is dipped in blood, that amazing passage, right before that. So right before what we know to be the second coming, it says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So right before Christ returns, there's an announcement that says, The bride is ready. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, the church is called the bride of Christ. And we see many times, in Jesus' words especially, that final day is described as a bridal feast over and over again. We have the parable in Matthew 25 of the virgins waiting for the return of the bridegroom. Now, you've probably heard this ever since you were a little kid singing, Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning, 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 as a reference to the church. And it certainly applies. But if you read that passage, these virgins are waiting for what? For the bridegroom to return with his bride. And as I've told us several times, Matthew 24 and 25 is talking about the nation of Israel. And so if that is talking about Israel, the Jews waiting on earth for the bridegroom to return with his bride. Revelation, we see the bride getting ready to return with the bridegroom. And we know that the church is the bride of Christ. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? That the whole world is waiting for Christ to return with his bride, the church. We are returning with him. We read it back in chapter 4, verse 17. It says we will meet him. To meet him means not only to go out to meet him, but to come back with him. And there's some that want to say that that proves that we're not going to go up to heaven. To me, it just says we're, we are going to come up to heaven and we're going to come back. There's just seven years in the middle. So to sum this up here, all this together, the church is not destined to wrath. The tribulation is the day of wrath. Therefore, the church cannot go through the tribulation. And when you read the most detailed description of the tribulation, which is the book of Revelation, you don't see the church there. And on its own, that argument might not be that compelling, but when you put it all together, it becomes very suggestive, as you might say. I draw all this out to show you that we're not just speculating here. We're not just going, gee, I really don't want to go through any tough times, so I hope Jesus comes and gets me. This is doctrine. How can you say that I have to go through the wrath of God when Jesus already took all the wrath on the cross and said, it is finished? We have good biblical reasons for this interpretation. And there are other interpretations. I think they're wrong or I wouldn't be preaching this one. But it's important that we don't just have to sit and take it when people say, oh, you just, you just want to get out of here. You, just, you can't accept that you'd have to go through a tough time. Say, no, I have such a high view of what Jesus did on the cross, I find it inconceivable that I should have to go through seven years of his wrath. It's important. We're not destined to wrath. That's huge. Not just because Paul said it, but because we've seen throughout the Bible, God doesn't punish the just with the unjust. We just finished talking about this on Wednesday nights, Sodom and Gomorrah. When God came and told Abraham, I'm going to destroy the city of Sodom, it says in Genesis 18, verses 23 through 26, Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find fifty righteous in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And if you know the story, Abraham talks God down to 10. God said, if I find 10 righteous people in Sodom, I won't destroy it. Abraham knew God's character. He knew that God is not going to allow his perfect justice to be executed against somebody who didn't deserve it. And so God says, all right, if I find 10 righteous people in Sodom, I won't destroy it. He only found one and he barely made the cut. That was lot. But in Christ Jesus, as we already read, 2 Corinthians 5.21, we are the righteousness of God. This would be no place for us to start talking about how sinful and awful we are, because it doesn't matter how awful we are. It matters how righteous Christ is, because that's what we're banking on. We are the righteousness of God. So to be true to His nature and His word, God cannot destroy us with the rest. I think this is very significant. If God said, I won't even destroy Sodom if there's ten good guys, there are millions of Christians around the world. Is the Lord going to say, I won't destroy Sodom for 10, but I'll destroy the whole world for millions of righteous Christians? There's so many examples of this in Scripture, starting with Lot. In Genesis 19:22, when the angels are in the city trying to get Lot to leave, it's kind of obnoxious, like, Lot, get out of there. They're going to burn it up with fire and brimstone. But they said, in verse 22, he said, I can do nothing until you leave. Lot, I'm going to destroy the city, but I can't do anything until you get out of here. Another suggestive verse that is not definitive, but I think is very interesting. In verse 16, the angels didn't get Lot to leave on its own. It says that the angels seized him and carried him out of the city. That could be significant for us, isn't it? Because we're expecting ourselves to be seized and carried away out of the city, aren't we? Out of the world. So, if God told Lot, I can do nothing until you are out of the city, do we expect that God's going to look at the world with his millions of Christians and say, I can, I can judge this? I don't think so. What about Noah? God was going to destroy the whole world, but Genesis 6-8 says that Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And God delivered his whole family on the ark. Peter makes a big deal out of this. We're not going to look at these passages now, but 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter 2, comparing uh, Noah's deliverance to our deliverance through Christ. He uses the metaphor of water and baptism. It's a, it's a great passage, but we don't have time to read it now. What about Rahab? The city of Jericho was going to be destroyed. God said, I'm going to wipe out everybody in this place, but we're going to spare Rahab because she humbled herself before the Lord, and helped the spies when they were in the city. And so God spared her from that judgment. It's Joshua 6.25 if you want to go read that. I mean, you you see this all the time. Daniel and his companions were led out of the city before the siege happened. Jehoshaphat was in battle with Ahab, and God said, this is my day when I'm going to destroy Ahab. But it says that he spared Jehoshaphat because Jehoshaphat was a righteous man. What about Paul when he's on the boat? And the, the, the storm is raging, and they're getting knocked about, and Paul's like, don't worry, guys, I'm here. And the Lord's got to get me to Rome. So as long as you're with me, it's going to be okay. God doesn't punish the righteous with the unrighteous. God will not allow his people to be caught up in the judgment of the wicked. We've seen it throughout Scripture. So I think I have a pretty good theological basis for expecting and believing that God is going to do the same thing with you and with me. Especially when we read passages like, 1 Thessalonians 4 and John 14 and 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the mystery of being caught up, of being raptured. It's not really a verb, but we use that word anyway. If we have that example that, do we expect that we're going to suffer when Lot didn't suffer? Or that Noah was delivered, but we're not going to be delivered? Or Rahab? We are not destined for wrath. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Those are broad themes. Are there any other verses, like specific things that say this? Yes, there are. There are places where God told us that we might escape those seven years. Now, you might have to buckle up for this one. It's important. There are a lot of Greek prepositions. A preposition is a word like in, above, on, beside. This chart right here was the bane of my existence when I was in seminary. I used to have to recreate this chart all the time. And it's supposed to demonstrate that the circle is, is the the baseline, and every Greek word here shows you its relation to the the main thing and, and what it means. So you've got the word huper, which means over, and so the line is over, and epi is upon, and en means in, right? It's very significant, okay? Because there is a word that means out of, and the word is ek. Now, there is a word that means through, which is dia. There's a word that means in, which means en. There's a word that means out of, which is ek. That is a significant word because it is used in relation to the Great Tribulation several times. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. The Lord told the church, he said, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Because you've kept my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming. I will keep you from. That word is ek." I will keep you out of the hour of trial. Which is, of course, in context, that hour of trial is the tribulation. He's about to finish up chapter 3 and start talking about it. He says, because you've kept my word, I'm going to keep you out of that. It's It's a very literal translation. And they translate it from, because there are other interpretations, but that's what the word means. Luke 21, 36. Jesus said, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Luke 21, he's been talking about that day that is coming upon the whole earth. We would call it the tribulation, okay? And he says that we may escape it. That word is ekfugo. Now, this is a verb form. Fugo means to flee. Ek means out of, to escape. This is the word that they used when the Jailer and Philippi thought that all the prisoners had escaped and was about to kill himself. It's the word that it used when Paul was lowered in a basket out of the city of Damascus to escape the people that were trying to kill him. Ekfugo means to get out. <laughs> he says there are those who will be able to escape, to get out. That's pretty significant to me. Those who are awake, he says, you may have strength. To stay awake and escape. Paul uses that same language in chapter 5, doesn't he? He says to stay awake and stay alert so that it doesn't come upon you like a thief because we are not appointed to wrath. Jesus is offering us the option to get out like Paul got out of Damascus. So this is not just one verse. It's not just broad themes. There are specific places in Scripture and promises that say we will not endure that day but escape that day. So it's not a matter of, do I want to go through the tribulation or not? It's a matter of, did God say that I had to go through it or not? Let me bring this back. I've made a couple points today, and I want to lay this out in logical form so we hear this clearly. This is, to my mind, more or less unassailable, which is why I believe these things. First of all, the church is not destined to wrath. Everyone agrees. The tribulation is the day of wrath. Almost everyone agrees. Therefore, the church will not go through the tribulation. Now, there are folks that have a hard time with number three, but are down with number one and two. So I don't see how else you're supposed to answer that. Because we've seen that the church is not going to be able to, like, duck and dodge all the judgment that's coming. But the Christians during that time are going to be wiped out. The Jews will be preserved. The Christians will not. Let's look at another point I made today. Number one, the church is promised great victory. Jesus told Peter, the gates of hell will not prevail. How many times? 2 Corinthians says it over and over again. We're marching on. The gospel is not in chains. But number two, Christians in the tribulation are going to be overcome by Satan and the Antichrist. Something Jesus promised would never happen to his church. Therefore, we believe the church will not go through the tribulation. And in this context, we're using that word church theologically. Not just to refer to any group of Christians, but to this specific group of Christians that we have now. And number three... God does not punish the righteous with the unrighteous, does he? Lot, Noah, Rahab were all preserved. We are righteous in Christ Jesus. Everybody's with us so far. One and two, universal agreement. Number three, the tribulation is the punishment of the unrighteous. Kind of hard to disagree with that. Therefore, the church will not go through the tribulation. These are theological conclusions, these are not wishful thinking. I mean finally we could say the Bible tells us to be alert and to hold to God's word that we might escape ek out of the tribulation. Was Jesus making a legitimate offer or was he just saying nice things? You'll notice I said nothing about the mechanics of the rapture. Because then this is what starts to happen. Once once you've nailed down what the Bible says, folks want to start asking questions like, well, do you you think that these millions of Christians are just going to disappear and planes are going to drop out of the sky and all that stuff? Bible doesn't say any of that. Seems possible. Seems likely. But I don't know. And here's the thing. I don't have to know. God knows. Elijah was swept up in a chariot of fire. Maybe we're going to get swept up in chariots of fire. How'd you like that? And also, I don't comment on the impact the rapture will have on the world. Because that's something else the Bible doesn't discuss. Because this is what happens. People, they don't look at the argument. They look at the left-behind books. That seems preposterous. To which I say, it's a, it's a novel. What does the Bible say? Read the theological books that undergird the novels, right? I had this conversation not long ago. It was like, well, everybody just is a Tim LaHaye theology. I'm like, have you ever read a Tim LaHaye book? It's probably more academic than you're used to. Just because he got together with a novelist to help present a popular version of it doesn't mean that we get to look at the version and say, oh, that seems silly. People's feelings falling out on the airplanes and stuff. Okay, well, I'm not tied to that, I'm tied to this. That I don't see how you can say that a Christian who is not destined for wrath is going to have to endure seven years of the worst wrath that God has ever poured out on the entire world. The rapture is called a great mystery in the Bible. And there's a lot that we are not given. But I think when you interpret it this way, it answers so many questions that other schemes simply cannot answer. When you combine this with the doctrine of imminence, How can you say that the return of Jesus Christ is imminent if we know that there will be seven years of very specifically outlined judgments coming upon the world? When you look at the distinction between Israel and the church, Romans 9, 10, and 11, when you analyze the rapture passages themselves, Jesus said in John 14, I will come and take you to my father's house where there are many mansions, that where I am you may be also. Did he mean I'm going to take you down to a broken earth and we're going to make it better throughout the millennium? Going to happen, but it seems like he's talking about two different things to me. I think it's highly conclusive that the rapture is going to take place before the tribulation. Now, the, again, as I said at the very beginning of this little series, we've done the biggest thing we have to contend with is that this is not a simple system. And you know, because you've been sitting and listening to it for three weeks, and you know it's not simple. It is very simple to say the rapture and the second coming are the exact same things, they're all going to happen at once. And I don't have to worry about the details. God knows them. Okay, that's very simple. And it sounds spiritual. But it fails to look at things like this and answer a question. So you believe we're going to go through the wrath of God? Well, God will preserve us. Yeah, but it says he's not, though. Well, then, I don't know. God knows. Okay, yeah, God does know, but God has also revealed other things to us. Well, God's concealed it, so I don't need to worry about it. Yeah, it is is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to search it out. Well, God just told us that we're going to, we'll, we'll know that he's going to win. As long as we know that Jesus wins in the end, it doesn't matter. But if you read through Revelation chapter 1, he says, I have written these things that you may know what is to come. And Isaiah, the Lord says, you're going to know I'm the Lord because I say what's going to happen way before it happens. This is not simple. But I think you could, you could put it this way. When we present our th- this theology as a whole, there are seams. You know, you can see where this passage and this passage together, are, they're, they're kind of stitched together. We have to do that because it's a big Bible and there's a lot of verses to reference. There are seams and some people look at that and they say, oh, it just seems really complicated. You're right. But I feel like some other things, they, they hold up a blanket and it's like an afghan. There's a bunch of holes in it. And it's very simple, but I'm like, what about this though? What about that though? What about this? And what about that? I feel like we have answers for all of those things, even if it makes it more complicated in the end. We know that the first coming of Jesus was rather unexpected in a lot of ways, wasn't it? But there were folks who knew. There were folks who were ready. Anna and Simeon waiting in the temple for the first coming of Jesus. He says to them when he was riding into into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he goes, I told you. And you didn't know. How did you not know? I gave you the day in the book of Daniel. How did you not know? And I think in the same way the Lord expects us to know. Can we know every detail? No, but we can know enough. But I think the thing to remember as we come to the end here, this is not just academic. This is not just wanting to have a good interpretation, although we do want to do that. Paul gives us all this information in the context of encouragement and exhortation. So let's read verse 11 and bring this to a close by remembering why we studied all this. Verse 11, he says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Therefore, that brings it All to a close, and in verse 12, he's going to go into a new subject. Because we know that Jesus Christ will return to us prior to the awful day of trouble, we can be encouraged and edified. We're encouraged because we know God loves us, and God did everything necessary to save us, and that the wrath of God is not left for you and for me. That's encouraging. Even death is not going to stop him from saving us and calling us home. That's why the Thessalonians were worried, remember? They had brothers and sisters who died. Have they missed it? And Paul's like, no way. When the Lord returns, he's going to take us and our dead brothers and sisters in Christ. That's pretty wonderful. And it's edifying because we know that this could happen at any time, and it compels us to live righteously. Another weird accusation that I've gotten is, well, this just tells you to be lazy because you know that Jesus Christ is, is coming back. I don't see how that works. I feel like it makes you more urgent If you knew the boss could come back at any minute, that's not when you're lazy. If you knew he was coming back in seven years, that's when you get lazy. And I don't accuse those who hold other positions of being lazy. I'm just saying it's as unfair for me to say that as it is for them to say it to us. If we know Christ could come back tomorrow, that puts a little bit of fire in your belly. John says we don't want to shrink from him in shame when he comes. We want to be able to welcome him and celebrate. And we've sung so many times at this church, it might be today, right? We make the most of every day. You keep one eye on the sky saying, the Lord could come back. Expectant that at any moment, Christ Jesus could call his bride home. The time for the job to be completed will be done. The birth pangs will begin. And so now while we can, we are striving to accomplish his work, to live in faith and holiness with the joy of that hope on our minds. And you know what? That last thing there, that we're waiting for the Lord with joy and doing the work as much as we can, All our brothers and sisters in Christ can agree on that. However you believe it's going to pan out in the end, we can agree that we need to get to work, that we need to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ, and that we need to hurry because we don't have much time. So this is something to discuss and debate. I don't think it's something to fight about. But I also think it's important for us to remember that we have a Lord that knows what's coming. He's let us know in broad strokes and in some detail what's coming. And it ought to compel us to get back to work and to live righteously.